Well, good morning, everyone. It is a wonderful day to be here. It's good to see you all today. We're thankful to have the chance to come together to, as we've said now multiple times, to magnify God together. And we'll circle back around to that idea today, but that should be our goal whenever we come to worship, that everything else will get smaller in relation to an almighty God that deserves the praise and the focus that we make our goal to do today and to bring our focus to Him. And we're going to do that partially today by studying in Hebrews Chapter 12, we should finish the chapter today. So this is kind of the second half of about a, last time I spoke was on the first half of Hebrews chapter 12. And we're going to continue on there, roughly in verse 18. So I had to stop in the middle of a whole flow of thought because uh, the next section was going to take a little bit. So we're right in the middle of Hebrews chapter 12 this morning. And just to get a little uh, momentum back from where we left off, he had been talking about the importance of them understanding how God could chasten, correct, and guide them in their faith. Now, they might have difficulties. They might have pains. It even tells us in verse 11. It tells them that they were going to be trained, and training involves difficult, hard things where you are corrected in their, in their faith. In Hebrews specifically, they were drifting. They were forgetting the things, he tells them. They were starting to slip away. And part of their correction was that they needed to be uh, refocused and centered on the God that they serve and what his plan now says. And that's going to be kind of the theme as we run into these next verses. But after telling them the importance of handling God's correction in the right way, he says, therefore, because you need to handle God's correction like a true son, a true son is disciplined by his father, therefore strengthen the hands which hang down and the feeble knees. The, the people who are weak around you, the brethren that are weak around you, strengthen them down or strengthen them up and help make straight paths for their feet so that what is lame may not be dislocated. We don't need any members of the body dislocated, but we want everyone to be healed. Pursue peace with all people and holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Verse 15, looking carefully, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble, and by this many become defiled. Lest there be any fornicator or profane person. Remember, profane was something that is common. Esau was a common man. Why? Because he saw the promises of God, and he, for one morsel of food, for one little bit of fleshly satisfaction, sold his birthright. For you know that afterward, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, the blessing from his father Isaac, he was rejected. For he found no place for repentance, though he sought it diligently with tears. And the point we made last week was that Esau gave up his birthright, and we need to be careful not to give up our spiritual birthright, our hope of heaven. So leading into Hebrews uh, chapter 12, verse 18. So we need to be careful of this for you have not come to the mountain that may be touched and that burned with fire and to blackness and darkness and a tempest. So everything we've led up to, the fact that they need to leave, uh, they need to not leave behind their, their faith and their hope in Jesus. The fact that they need to not leave behind everything they've learned is because they want to serve the God that they have come to know. And they want to go back to the Old Testament. The Old Testament was where we read about this situation where Moses went up to Mount Sinai and where God met them on the mountain. It was a scary sight. 
But he's telling them, it's not like it used to be. That's not the God that you're coming to right now. It's the same God, but it's not the situation that we are meeting him at. For you have not come to this mountain that burned with fire and a blackness and darkness and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and the voice of words so that those who heard it begged that the word should not be spoken to them anymore. He says, this isn't, this isn't the situation you're coming to. For they could not endure what was commanded, these people in the Old Testament. And what was told them was, if so much as a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned or shot with an arrow. Okay, if you're jumping into this and you've never read this, that might, this might sound a little weird. But stay with it. And so terrifying was the sight. This presence of God where God met the mountain and he, just, he set a boundary and says, don't come here. This is serious. It was so terrifying that Moses said, I'm exceedingly afraid and trembling. Moses was, was, the, was the go-between. He was the one who was, a, who was a faithful follower of God. And even him, even he said, I'm terrified. So if you're not familiar with this, let's take a little step back just to show you Exodus chapter 18, verse 10. It says, then the Lord said to Moses, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow. Basically make them ready, prepare them, set them apart and let them wash their clothes, the cleansing and let them be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down upon Mount Sinai in the sight of all people. You shall set bounds for the people all around saying, take heed to yourselves or watch out that you do not go up to the mountain or touch its base. Whoever touches the mountain shall be surely put to death. Not a hand shall touch him. So don't even go out there and get him. Don't even go out there yourself and retrieve him. But he shall surely be stoned or shot with an arrow. Whether man or beast, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds long, they shall come near the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and sanctified the people, and they washed their clothes. And he said to the people, Be ready for the third day. Do not come near your wives. Then it came to pass on the third day in the morning that there were thunderings and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain. And the sound of the trumpet was very loud, so that all the people who were in the camp trembled. And Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Put yourself in the shoes of people seeing this happen right now. Seeing an almighty God in the, in the way that he chose to meet them in this instance. God has chosen many different ways to express himself. And in this situation, it's with power and with fear. Now Mount Sinai was completely in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire. Its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace and the whole mountain quaked greatly. I've never been on a, I've really never even felt an earthquake. It's kind of crazy living in the States, been through so many, never felt them. I can't imagine being on a mountain that is shaking. And when the blast of the trumpet sounded long and became louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him by a voice. Then the Lord came down upon, upon Mount Sinai on the top of the mountain and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain and Moses went up. Now, it goes on to say in the next chapter, now all the people witnessed this. They saw the thunderings, the lightnings, the flashes, the sound of the trumpet, and the mountain smoking. And when the people saw it, they trembled and they stood afar off. They respected the, the danger of it. Then they said to Moses, you speak with us, and we will hear, but let not God speak with us lest we die. And the Hebrews, the Hebrew writer is saying, these people could not handle it. 
They were terrified. They were, they were overwhelmed. And Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you, and that his fear may be before you, so that you may not sin. So the people stood afar off, but Moses drew near the thick darkness where God was. The point of what he's saying here, he says, you haven't come to this. You didn't come to this kind of mountain. The whole point of Hebrews is we're taking a step forward. Don't take a step backward to this mountain. The place that we are coming to is in verse 22. The grand reveal. But you have come to Mount Zion. Not Mount Sinai that was burning and terrifying. You've come to Mount Zion. Mount Zion is a symbol of God's victory and the place where his people will have a meeting with him. Mount Zion into the city of the living God. The heavenly Jerusalem. They saw Jerusalem as their holy place. They wanted to go back to Jerusalem, to Judaism. This is all part, he's contrasting it with what they want to go back to. Don't go to Mount Sinai. Don't go to Jerusalem. Go to the heavenly Mount Zion. Go to the heavenly Jerusalem. To an innumerable company of angels. We think we're, uh, we're I think, we're supposed to think about what he's already talked about in Hebrews right here. We've talked about the power of angels and how one angel here and there did a great thing. He says, you haven't come to one angel who delivered the word, or maybe two, who brought a message. You've come to an innumerable, an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and the church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven, to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect. He said, the angels that you guys revered because of their power, and even the just men made perfect who were revered in your past, in your history of Judaism. All of these people, if they really walked in faith and they were just men, you're all coming to the same place. You're not leaving the goals of the people before you to move on to the New Testament. They are coming to Mount Zion. They just came through a physical Jerusalem. You are, as Christians, you're not necessarily going through Jerusalem anymore. It's not Judaism, but you are going to the same mountain, the same place to meet God. Because you, like them, are trying to be just men who God makes perfect and whole. And Jesus is what makes us whole, and he is what saves the people from the past as well. He emphasizes life. He emphasizes that it is a city of the living God. We've talked a lot about sacrifice and death in this letter. But this is a city of the living God who brings life to the people. All of this is part of the same plan. Verse 24, you have come to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. Okay, so there's a couple things to point out here. This, this is an interesting phrase that I had to study quite a bit, and, and uh, we'll, we'll uh, dive into this phrase. What does the blood of, of Abel speak? And I think there's two different things we could take out of this. Uh, some people uh, emphasize one aspect of this statement, and other people emphasize another. I'm going to share them both with you because I think they both fit. I think they're both true, and so which one he's emphasizing right here? You decide they are both true points. So when he says that the blood of Jesus 
speaks better than things than that of Abel. I think the first thing he could be referring to is the blood of Abel's sacrifice. So we learn from the Old Testament, you have Adam, who was the first man, then he had two sons, Cain and Abel. Cain offered a sacrifice of the field, but Abel offered a sacrifice in faith of an animal. He sacrificed that animal's life. And so that animal was, in some ways, one of the first or maybe the first sacrifice made. So he was the first man, Abel was, born into a fallen world where he had to kill an animal to sacrifice to God. He was born into this fallen world where Adam, his father, had made a mistake that got them kicked out of the garden. But Abel was in a fallen world that he didn't necessarily have a he wasn't responsible for it. And it was his responsibility to respond by killing something that they had previously, in the garden, had a peaceful relationship with. They didn't have to kill animals in the garden for sacrifice. And so this was not the ideal system. God did not want a place where animals had to die for people's sins to connect with God. So it was not the ideal system. And it was also an insufficient sacrifice. Even the animals that were brought before God and killed with, with this sprinkling of blood, they were not sufficient sacrifices. So where the blood of Abel was in so many different ways not the intention of God from the beginning. Jesus' sacrifice and the blood of Jesus speaks so much greater things because as Abel sacrificed to a world that was fallen full of death, Jesus speaks life into a fallen world where death and sin had its way. Jesus brings the life. Jesus' sacrifice is to repair a world that was broken in the very beginning when man sinned and was kicked out of the garden. Jesus brought life. He also fixed an imperfect system. Jesus ended the need of sacrifice that was continuing every year. The fact that Jesus put a stop to this continual death is such a blessing, and it, brings the, it speaks to the life that Jesus brought. And Jesus provided the perfect sacrifice that all of those lambs, all those bulls were not perfect. Jesus brought a perfect sacrifice to fix an imperfect system and brought life to a world that was fallen. So I think in this sense, Abel's sacrifice or Jesus' sacrifice is so much greater than Abel's literal sacrifice that he offered. Okay, so I think that's one way that this blood of Abel uh, could, could factor in. So that, that fact is true. Jesus' sacrifice is so much greater. But many people emphasize how Abel's blood himself, the blood of Abel in, in the fact that his brother killed him, it speaks something, uh, Jesus speaks greater than the blood of Abel. So let's, let's dive into that for a minute. In Genesis chapter 4, when, when Cain kills Abel, God says to Cain, what have you done? The voice of your brother Abel's blood cries out to me from the ground. So there's this concept of Abel's blood speaking something and crying out something from the dead. And we learn that, that that cry is a terrible cry. And this this idea of, of people who have died for their faith, people who have died in faith, 
It's carried on in Revelation chapter 10, verse 19. It says, when he opened the fifth seal, this is a lot of symbolic imagery. We're not going to unpack all this, but here's what happened. I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they cried aloud with a loud voice saying, how long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth. There's this picture of people who have died crying out to God, their blood and their loss crying out to God, even in heaven. Then a white robe was given to each of them, and it was said to them that they should rest a little while longer until both the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who would be killed as they were was completed. There's going to be a day where this tragic stuff stops happening. Okay, But there's this picture of crying out and death so the question is, okay, if, if we're talking about Abel's blood, the martyr Abel who died because of his brother, if that's the blood that's crying out, what might that blood be saying? Number one, I think it cries out vengeance and justice for the innocent. As we talk about in Revelation, how long before this justice gets brought? All these terrible things that are happening, how long? And Abel's blood in Genesis 4 was crying out, from the ground and speaks to the wrong that was done and vengeance needing to be taken because of the terrible act there. So it cried out for vengeance and justice, I believe. But I also believe it cries out something else. In Hebrews chapter 4, 11, verse 4, we've talked about this already. By faith, Abel brought to God, brought God a better offering than Cain. By faith, he was commended as righteousness when God still when God spoke well of his offerings. And by faith, Abel still speaks, even though he is dead. So there it is again. That phrase of Abel's blood, Abel's death, him still speaking. I think the second thing Abel's blood cries out is righteousness and faithfulness to God, despite the evil of Cain. Okay? So if Abel's blood cries out for vengeance, and cries out for justice against uh, against the people who have done wrong for the innocent. And it cries out, even speaks of righteousness and faithfulness against evil. How does what Jesus did speak better things than all of this terrible mess? I believe, number one, that Jesus' blood cries out mercy and forgiveness where vengeance would normally take place. Because really, we all deserve vengeance, and we all deserve justice against us. That would not work well for us if justice were to happen. Because justice would convict us of wrong. It would find us guilty. We learn that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Whether we realize it this morning, whether we care that much about it, whether you're sitting in your seat today and you care about that fact or not, it's true. You are guilty. I am guilty. So we don't want justice. Even though it might take care of things, wrongs we've seen done, it would take care of us just as bad. So Jesus' blood speaks so much greater things because it cries out mercy and forgiveness, even in the situation of Abel. I was talking to somebody this week, you know, can you be forgiven for murder? Well, yes, vengeance, you know, the legal system needs to do what it does. God can forgive that. God can forgive. 
And we should be so thankful for that. Jesus' blood speaks so much greater things than even the vengeance, though it might be sweet, is necessary. So Jesus' blood speaks, speaks better things concerning righteousness and faithfulness because even though Abel was good, even though Abel was faithful to God, that alone was not going to save him. Jesus' blood speaks greater things because that cries out salvation and righteousness in a way that Abel's goodness, Abel's faithfulness never could have brought for himself. So this verse, to Jesus the mediator of a new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling, Jesus' blood of sprinkling speaks so much better things than that of Abel, no matter what angle you want to look at this at. Jesus' blood speaks so much greater things than the sacrifices that Abel made, or even the blood that cries out from the ground. Okay, verse 25. See that you do not refuse him who speaks. For if they did not escape who spoke, if they did not, let me start again. If they did not escape who refused him who spoke on earth, much more shall we not escape if we turn away from him who speaks from heaven. In the Old Testament, they, they were spoken through prophets. We learned in the, earlier in this book how God spoke to them in many ways, from earth and from prophets. So if they did not escape, who refused him who spoke on earth? Think uh, Moses in the wilderness, the people who rebelled against Moses. The ground opened up and swallowed them. They did not escape. The sons of Korah. So if they did not escape, how shall we escape, us in the New Testament age, if we turn away from him who speaks from heaven? Jesus came down to earth and spoke to us on earth. And now his call continues from heaven. If you and I do not accept that and follow that today, do we really think we're going to have a chance to get away in the judgment? Now, this is a dark picture, but it's only dark if you stay here. The other side is beautiful, but this is truth. This is love to tell everyone, to tell ourselves, we will not escape judgment if we do not cling to Jesus. And if we do not cling to the new law that saves us, because he's speaking from heaven, whose voice then shook the earth. But now he has promised, saying, yet once more, I shake not only the earth, but also heaven. So this is referring to, again, from chapter 19, it told us the mountain quaked greatly. So if the mountain quaked, he says, his voice then shook the earth. But now he has promised, saying, yet once more, I shake not only the earth, but heaven also. Now this, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are being shaken, as of things that are made, that the things which cannot be shaken may remain. So what is this? It, this is a question I had. What does it mean that heaven is going to be shaken? Does that mean the place where God dwells is going to be affected by this great shakeup of everything? If you look in Haggai chapter 2, verse 6, this is kind of the connection uh, this, this quote here is being connected to Haggai chapter 2, verse 6, where it says, For thus says the Lord of hosts, Once more, it is a little while, I will shake heaven and earth, the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations, and they shall come to the desire of all nations. And I will fill this temple with glory, says the Lord of hosts. So this passage, for context, or for understanding what, the, what Hebrews is talking about, this passage is saying heaven and earth, the sea and the dry land. There's different words for heaven. This heaven is talking about the sky. 
It's basically saying all creation is going to be shaken up. The heaven, the earth, the sea, and all dry land. So, if everything is going to be shaken, the ground that you stand on, the ground that you walk on today, and the sky that you look up to, if all that's going to be shaken, we should hold on to things that cannot be shaken. Hold on to hope, hold on to faith and promises, because verse 28, Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And these people probably were shaken in a lot of ways at this point. Let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear, for our God is a consuming fire. At this point, these people who are hearing this letter are either so dull that they're not hearing God's command and they're just uh, inattentive, you know, hearing this letter. Maybe it was being read from the audience and they're sleeping in their seats. Or if they were taking it to heart, they were shaken. Their faith was shaken by hearing these this wake-up call. Maybe they were shaken because of this great warning and realizing where they were at. Or maybe their faith was shaken before the letter. Whatever the case is, these people were shaken up. And they need to understand and refocus. This whole part of this section of the letter is refocusing them on a, on a great God. And this is where I, I was wanting to reference that verse in Psalm 34, verse 3, where the psalmist said, Oh, magnify the Lord with me, and let us exalt his name together. So that word magnify, I always read over it in the, in the songs I read over it, but magnifying something, if you take a magnifying glass to it, is to make that one thing bigger than everything else by choice relative to the things that are around it. So if I take a magnifying glass to a bug, I'm choosing to see the, the details, to focus and make this thing bigger so I can zoom in on that and make my field of view more consumed by that thing. As Christians, as humans who are living this uh, human experience, we have the choice what we're going to focus on. We can exalt God. We can focus our attention on God and make him bigger and zoom in to examine his glory and to lift him up. Or we can choose to let him slip into the mundane, slip into the things that don't matter in our life. Perspective is such a fascinating thing. There's that song with the, with the lyrics that say, Oh, may no earthborn cloud arise to hide thee from thy servant's eyes. The song is saying, I don't want anything from earth to get in the way of me seeing you, God. To me, focusing on you. Because I don't want those things, those earthly clouds, those earthly whatever can get in our way, to hide God from our own sight. We don't want anything to get in the way of being able to see him. Because as this picture shows, really you can put your thumb up to the sun and, and the sun goes away. You cannot see the sun behind your thumb if you put it at the right angle. Does that mean the sun is not big? Does that mean the sun is not powerful? Does that mean my thumb is bigger than the sun or that I can really stop the sun? No, it's perspective. I can let things in my perspective get in the way of the greatness that is there. It is our job to magnify God, 
in our week. Coming to church once a week is not enough to magnify the Lord in our hearts. He will slip into the details, into the mundane if we let him, myself included. And this is something I want to work on this week, magnifying the Lord however I can. And this is what they needed to be reminded of. To focus on the God who had this master plan from the beginning because they were slipping into their view of what God was. God was Old Testament. God was this. God was sacrifices. But God wants to point them back to him and to what he tells them their faith should be grounded on. He says, let us have grace because of this. Let us have grace. Now, some people say this means let us be grateful. Let us uh, show grace in our hearts. Uh, And that's true. We should be grateful because of that. And that will help us serve God acceptably, acceptably with reverence and godly fear. But uh, others emphasize that this uh, let us have grace means more to let us have and hold on to grace. Let us cling closely to it so that we can serve God acceptably with reverence and fear. And I think those are both true. Sometimes it feels like we cannot serve God acceptably. Sometimes, you know, our own insecurities, our own perspective makes it feel like we cannot serve God in an acceptable way. But God tells us that we can serve him acceptably with reverence and godly fear. So may we, may we fight that desire or that thing that stirs up in our hearts to, to demean what we can do. In the sight of God, we can serve God acceptably in this life. Part of that includes receiving the kingdom, accepting it, accepting the grace of God, and with reverence and godly fear, serving him however he asks. We can serve God acceptably, and it's important because he is a consuming fire. He is still the great God of the Old Testament, but he's revealing himself in this grand way with Jesus and the heavenly Jerusalem in a better covenant. I'll make one more point on this. I want to caution us against a mistake I have made and that I think sometimes we can fall into easily in this. I've underlined, let us have grace. Let us hold on to grace. It is true that we need to always maintain a balance, understanding grace's role in our lives and our responsibility as followers of God. We must both wholeheartedly serve God, but wholeheartedly understand that we we cannot earn this. We cannot deserve this. We cannot able we cannot do righteous able works enough to save ourselves. And I've said in the past, I've talked about overemphasizing grace as a problem, and that comes from a desire to counteract people who de-emphasize the importance of our own efforts in our life, our own works. You know, because we cannot, we've already been learned from this letter, we cannot see God without holiness. Holiness is following God and living out the fruits of the Spirit. So we cannot leave behind either grace or our own role in walking in the Spirit. And I think sometimes we can say, you know, they focus too much on grace. Or they, maybe I should say different. Sometimes we say they overemphasize grace, but I don't think grace can be overemphasized enough. We just have to make sure there's a good balance. We have to, we can't de-emphasize grace in order to 
make the balance right. We have to emphasize grace and emphasize our responsibility as Christians. May we be careful not to undermine or ever downplay the grace of God because we need it so desperately and so completely. And if we start doing that, we may unintentionally undermine God's grace in our own hearts or in the hearts of others. This concludes this chapter, and I want to just read a section from Romans chapter 8. This, this drew my attention to Romans chapter 8 and, and the beauties that, that are conveyed about the gospel there. In verse 8 it says, There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. He condemned sin in the flesh, that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. I, I switched these slides on accident, so this is, I went back. Uh, these are out of order. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. Going on to verse 23. We ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body, for we were saved in this hope. But hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one still hope for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. Who, verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? We've come to this Mount Zion. We've come to this great city of the living God. And God is here for us in all of his great power. Who shall separate us from this love? Shall tribulation, shall distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? As it is written, as it is written for your sake we are killed all day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. That's kind of a, that's a, even a connection to the able there. Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, or any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Our God is a consuming fire, but he is also a God who welcomes us into his presence, who assures us of our salvation in him, and we should be persuaded that no matter what happens, we should put our trust in him and focus on him and our focus on Jesus because nothing can separate us from him except ourselves and our own decisions. May we serve God acceptably this week with reverence and fear. May we devote ourselves to him in the way that he asks. And we'll close there at, chapter, at the end of chapter 12, next time to continue on in chapter 13. If you have started this walk or if you've never started this walk as a Christian, Part of that acceptable service is taking seriously his commands. It's taking seriously what he asks of us. And not de-emphasizing or over-emphasizing or whatever you might say, anything against one another. We're told we've got to hear the word. We're told we have to believe that. 
We have to repent and change our lives so that we can live in the Spirit, as we read in Romans, so that we can live an acceptable life, and ultimately a life that's better for us as well. And we can be baptized for the remission of sins. We can confess that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and be baptized for the remission of our sins. And once we've done that, if we mess up, if you're here today and you've been added to the church, but you want to make things right, our God tells us we are welcome to ask for forgiveness. And you can take care of that in your seat. But if you would like some help with that this morning, if you would like to lift uh, the burdens off of yourself and help and uh, give them to the congregation so that we can help in any way, uh, please come forward this morning while we stand and sing. We thank you for listening to our podcast put on by the Church of Christ at 2215 Plans Road in Bakersfield. If you would like any additional information or you would like to receive a free Bible correspondence course by mail, please email us at info at churchofchristbakersfield.com. Our service times are Sundays at 1030 a.m. and 5 p.m. and Wednesdays at 730 p.m. Please make plans to join us. We would love for you to be our honored guest.